This is Infidel One. Offending Coyote Down. Offending Coyote Down. Roger that. Welcome to Trappin' Radio. We're proud, organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of North America. Let me tell you a little story about how I was raised. Every day work, every day pray. God, family, friends, yeah, everybody sins. A winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Help folks in need, don't fall for greed. A jealous man is weak, so think before you speak. If you love them, let them know. If you hate, let it go. Fast can be fun, but sometimes you need slow. God is all good, the devil is so real. So listen up, y'all, because this is how I feel. I won't back up, I don't back down I've been raised up to stand my ground Take my job, but not my guns Tax my check till I ain't got none Except for the good Lord of above I answer to no one Now let's cover our sponsors. They do a lot to help support Trapping Radio. So I'm asking you guys out there and gals, to help support our sponsors as they keep trapping radio on the air. First sponsors, Oki Cable and Trap Supply. Jeb's the owner of this. He's out of Oklahoma, super guy. You'll not meet anybody nicer. It's somebody you're gonna wanna deal with. You can reach him at OKTrapSupply.com. You can give Jeb a call at 918-429-4648. Not only does he do trap supply guys, he's a fur buyer, so if you're around the Oklahoma or surrounding states, give him a call with your fur. When you need stuff, give him a call and he'll get it out to you as soon as he can. Our second sponsor is F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Guys, if you're into trapping fur, hunting fur, chasing fur with dogs, you're not gonna be able to think of hardly anything that you can't get from F&T. You can reach them at fntpost.com. You can also give them a call at 989-727-8727. Whatever you want, F&T's got it. Wildlife Control Supplies. Proven solutions for wildlife control. Delivering value, expertise, and products to the wildlife individual. If you're in the ADC business, control business, even fur trapping, you need to look at these guys' website. Top-notch company, have everything you would want, even the odd stuff that ADC guys are looking for. You can reach them at wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. You can give them a call at 877-684-7262. International number is 860-844-0101. If you're a wildlife control professional, you need to have wildlife control supplies as one of your favorites on your computer or your phone because when you come across something that you need specialized equipment, Alan will get it right out to you. Now let's go traffic. Toting son of a gun, yeah, I'm hell on the heart, just a rebel on the run. Scared, don't know it, fear, don't feel it. The truth is the light, sometimes you gotta fight. Good beats bad, right beats wrong. I'm a ballroom preacher and this is my song. I'm climbing for the top, representing for the country. I'm the people's champ, right out to dead camp. Shotgun toter, Republican voter, Hank Jr. supporter, let's protect our border. 
to hell with anyone who don't believe in the USA. Cause this is what I say. I won't back up. I don't back down. I've been raised up to stand my ground. Take my job, but not my Hello everybody, this is your host Clint Locklear for Trapping Radio and I am going to do some, I, th I find this really neat to be honest with you. I've been getting some questions on Facebook and I'm going to use two of those tonight. One of them is about trapping in sand and the other one is uh, trap line management but more of in the order or the way that you look at what you decide to trap for. And that's a very intriguing question because you talking about going down some rabbit holes on this one. It's it is it can get pretty complicated unless you kind of understand what you're going for. So uh, it's one of those things you got to ask the right question before you come up with the right answer type thing. So it's it's one of those that are uh, I really enjoy doing. Before I do that, I want to uh, I talked about it on Ran of the Trapper last night, Ran of a Free Trapper last night, and. When this comes up on air tonight, guys, there's going to be a Trapping Radio special on Cat Collector Lure. And what the special is going to be, which if you're into cats, catching coyotes, fisher, marten, anything like that, you need to jump on this pretty quick because I have a certain number of these sections or, or groupings that I'm going to let out and then I'm going to turn it off. So it's first come and it's first serve. But what it is, and the reason I'm going to have to turn this off probably is because it's four, four ounces, which if you know anything about my four ounce lures, they're really five. If you actually do the, I like the bottles I put them in, so I'm giving actually uh, almost, well, it's about four and three quarter ounces of lure in there. So you're getting uh, really over four, four ounces of cat collector lure for $55 plus shipping. Now, that is a heck of a deal. And if you're, like I said, it doesn't go bad. You can just put it away. You can, you can, but it's also a tremendous uh, coyote. It does really good on fox. It's, it's tremendous on Fisher and Martin. And, and a lot of guys use it in Can Canada for lynx. You know, it's, uh, it's one of them lures, but it's a special that's not going to run very long because I have a feeling it's probably going to be gone pretty quick on the numbers that I want to move on this. So uh, go over to the uh, PG, PG, PCG store, excuse me, tongue's all twisted. I've been on the phone with an hour with UPS about a wholesale account that's been driving me crazy. But I digress. I'm trying to do my yoga breathing to, to, to calm down from all that. But And the, you'll also see meat glands on there. What this is, it's four ounces of meat glands that I cut out myself. Uh, there's actually a video of me showing this on YouTube and processing those where they have uh, ingredients in there so it holds the mink odor. It's a good odor. And what I would suggest, you can play around making lure and stuff with it, but if you're using any type of bait, whether it be for coyote, fox, or cats, you want a really cool change up, just take a, you know, one of them little plastic spoons, get you a wad of that out, mix it up in that 16 ounces, and you'll have a a more intriguing type bait than you probably would otherwise. And it, I don't know of any ingredients that mink actually collides with or causes any type issue. So if you're looking for a change up, that's gonna be uh, four ounces for $15, which is when you look up the price of mink, that's really good. The reason I'm doing that is I've got a, 
a uh, surplus of this. I've got about five years laid up right now. I've got some of this sitting there, so I thought I'd share it with, uh, with you, the listeners, a trapping radio. So that's the special that you're going to be seeing, and uh, I wouldn't take a lot of time with it. The other thing is, if you do the special this weekend, it's going to be a delayed shipping just because I'm going to be in Iowa, and I'm not shipping from Iowa. So and I'm gonna be in Manchester Isle at the FTA so if you're around that area please for goodness sake come by and say hi uh, let, let, just let me know who you are if I don't know who you are uh, it's it's always more interesting and uh, there's all kind of stuff there's demos going on at the show I'm doing a question and answer Friday or Saturday I think so if there's anything you ever wanted to ask me that's probably a pretty good time because that's what we're going to be doing so um that's going to be at the fta next week like i said the orders will be delayed till i get back so there'll be a, a little bit of delay so don't get excited as soon as i get back i'll get everything out in one day which will probably be next monday and then uh everything will be back on track so i was listening guys to a podcast with marcus latrell now most of y'all are going to know who he is he's kind of like one of those uh k type individuals that's a, it's definitely a a, a, a meat-eating carnivore type dude you know aggressive he's an, he was uh used to be a navy seal he's the one that the book the lone survivor was based on you know it's like him and his brother in a competition on how many times they can break their back and still walk it's amazing amazing guy as far as his way to push and use his body and stuff like that but he was talking about something on a podcast that really intrigued me and uh he knew if you never if you've never looked into the story of marcus trail it's, it's pretty crazy him and his brother decided they want to be seals because they were told that they were the baddest people on the planet they were the hard most hardcore warriors and they found an old Navy SEAL or SF guy and for years while they were in high school, and I think it even started before then, they would go every day and this guy would just abuse them, carrying telephone poles, you know, thousands of push-ups, screaming at them. I mean, uh, very abusive language. It's quite funny when you hear about it. But he knew that's what he was going to, him and his brother both were going to do, and they did. They both went in the SEALs, passed buds and uh were some of the you know most awesome warriors this country's ever seen but he had a fear of sharks and even in his high school book people were putting that in there about his fear of sharks because he knew as a seal you're gonna have to go into the ocean and the shark thing really really freaked him out now the the part of him bringing up this shark was talking about fear See, he decided that he was going to be a seal. He knew that there were sharks in the ocean. And if you, you get a big enough great white or something coming at you, there's nothing you can do as a human being about it. But the difference of a seal or anybody else in that situation, for that matter, is the, the mental part of going, yes, there's danger, but I still need to get done what I need to get done. And he made a comment in there that, I mean, it, to me it was profound. Most people are always looking for the shark. Now, in his profession, that was a very realistic thing. But for, for most of us, 
you know, I, I'm looking for sharks when I go to Florida because I eat them. They taste good. Me eats them whole. You know, I mean, I like them. So, I mean, I'm looking for sharks, but I'm in a little bit different situation. I'm not floating out there on an inner tube or in a dive vest or something trying to get them. I'm usually in a boat, in a kayak, or on the, on the, the beach when I'm after them. But, it, you know, it's a lot different. And I, I can tell you, I've been out in my, in my Hobie kayak you know, about uh, three quarters to a mile offshore where the water turns dark, where you know you're really deep and there's stuff under you that's about 16, 18 feet long. You can see the shadows under you. It is freaking scary. I'll be the first one to admit that, that there's been some serious puncture factor and probably a little bit of urination going on every now and then. When you look down and you see something crossing under the, the kayak and you have no idea what it is. So I'm not diving with them, you know, or anything like that. But his point was, people are always looking over their shoulder for the shark. And because they're always looking over their shoulder for the shark, they don't do what they need doing. So when he was a SEAL and they're sitting demolition or they're going in on an objective or whatever their mission was at the time, they had to be in the water with sharks. Now they could let fear freeze them, because he, and he admits he was deathly afraid of sharks. Still is to a certain extent. But his mind was, I've got a job to do, I'm gonna do it, and if a shark shows up, I'm gonna deal with it at the time. Now what he said is when the shark shows up, you realize you're also in your environment and you're somewhat trained on how to handle that. And his whole main point was to really live life, guys, you gotta quit looking for the sharks. Because, and, and I'll give you a good example of why. Let's say you wanted to start a, a business, which by the way, the new class or business course will be starting in July. So it's not that far away. So if you're interested in that, uh, you know, it's, it's a $2.99 money order sent to me, postal money order. And then I'll get you all your information. We start rocking and rolling. But whether it's starting a business whether it's your trapping, whether it's another hobby or another profession that you're not doing for a living, whatever it is, most people are so afraid of the shark that may not even be there and, and all honestly is never going to mess with you anyway that it makes them stay on the shore or they never get out of the boat. So what happens is, and this, this is a, a clear, I see this all the time. And it's, it's kind of like the, you know, what I call the butt tribe. Not butt as in derriere, but the butt tribe. So someone wants to start a business. Let's say I use an example of somebody that wanted to have a lifestyle in Arkansas last night on the ran of the free trapper. Let's say he wanted to, to, to go crush the mink early season and then he wanted to go do ADC and catch a bunch of otter in the winter and trout fish as a guide in the summer that's what he that's what this guy this fictional guy I'm thinking about wants to do but he's working at a job whether it be an auto parts store or a factory or whatever it is and he starts thinking about it and he starts dreaming about it and he starts playing with some numbers and looking at how feasible it is now if he's gonna be one of two things he can be an I can tribe or he's gonna be the butt tribe now the butt tribe is automatically gonna go but what if I don't get any clients? But what if the fur market crashes? What, but what about this? But what about that? What, but, so they're, they're, they're frozen because they're worried about the sharks. 
if the fur market crashes well then you adjust you know but it's like people want a guarantee of hundred percent safety in everything that they do along with a complete roadmap with every type of but what that they can ever come up with before they make a move why because they're looking over their shoulder for a shark and if you if you look at surfers if sharks were that bad on surfers you'd be hearing about them getting chewed on every day but it's a couple of times a year so percentage wise it's probably safer being with the sharks than it is driving your car to work if you look how many people get hit in cars every day but we don't look at it that way you know it's it's, it's kind of the same thing when when i was um, jumping out of airplanes in the military from a percentage point of view, I was much safer jumping out of that airplane as far as getting killed than I, about doing everything else in life that I do. I mean, including going into a swimming pool. I mean, it's uh, more people get struck by lightning than, than, than their parachutes don't open. And, and I've never been struck by lightning and no one in my family ever has. But the idea of the, the but what's of jumping out of the airplane really freaks people out. Or fast roping out of a you know a, a helo over a roof or coming off of a a blackhawk or something like that you know repelling down into the darkness and you're not sure what's down there you you automatically start going towards the sharks what is the shark gonna do I know the sharks out there I know the sharks gonna eat me it's gonna come up behind me I'm not gonna be expecting it I'm not gonna see it there's nothing I can do about it so it's better not to ever do anything so kind of the life question of the night show, are you spending your life in the butt tribe always looking over your shoulder for the shark? Because believe it or not, the shark is probably not as dangerous as you think it is. You know, poor Travis uh, over on my farm, for some reason we have got a rat snake uh, infestation. They're everywhere. They're not going to hurt him, but he gets freaked out about them. Well, the other night, he's with a bunch of buddies, and they come across a bunch of snakes, one after the other, frog gigging. You know, at first, it really freaked him out. Then he kind of got used to it. He realized the snake was not really a shark. But when we're looking at what we want to do in life or what we want to do in our trap line or anything else, it's always, but what about this? But what about that? But what about this? And it's, and it's basically... When you're saying that, I want you to visualize this for me. You're somebody that's that's literally scared, looking over their shoulder, looking for the great white shark that really doesn't care that you're there anyway. But the fear of the great white shark is just so detrimental that you never get in the water and do what you need to do as a as a as a grown up. You know, so Quit looking for the sharks, guys. A lot of times, they're all in your head, and they're not really real. You know, and if you're prepared for what the shark can bring, lower fur prices, or you got to pick up more on ADC if you're that fictional guy, or maybe you, you figure out some winter ways to do some catfishing or something to degenerate, well, then when the shark shows up, you just readjust, and, and the shark's not so scary anymore. You know, and it, and I understand if you're so used to someone or outsourcing all of your income and all of everything in your life to everybody else that it gets pretty scary to get out of that. But sometimes, trust me, life can be a little bit sweeter for you if you go ahead and get in the water and get with some of the sharks because 
they're probably not going to mess with you anyway. So just one little thing there. Now let's get to some trapping, guys, because these are some interesting questions to me that really made me think. One of them on Facebook was asking me about trapping in sand. Now, I've, I've trapped in, in sugar sand. I've trapped in beach sand, literally on the beach. I've trapped in uh, beach sand on islands in Canada. I have uh, trapped in, in high desert sugar beach sand basically in New Mexico. Sometimes in Texas you get to some places if, uh, if it's not too uh, alkaline of a soil that it is somewhat sandy. You know, so I have been in sand down. There's a lot of places in Alabama and Georgia where it's really sandy, but there's also a clay mixture and stuff in there. So I'm not quite sure specifically what, what the gentleman was asking about sand, but I took down some notes of some things that kind of popped my mind. I thought would go them real quick. One of the, one of the first things that I remember that popped in my head from sand is when you're when you're in places that have a mixture of sand or it looks like sand feels like sand and it's got a little bit of red tint to it and it's clay i've had some truly nightmares with that stuff because when it's nice and dry and it's fluffy and you're working with it and stuff like that uh you're, you it's easy to dig in it's easy to bed your trap in dig a hole in it's easy to put stakes in all that seems really wet uh, really good, but that if there's a clay base to that, or if you if you go out west, it may not be clay clay like red clay like eastern clay. It could be uh, what they refer to as gumbo, which is like a black. Uh, it's real fine uh, when it's dry. It turns into clay and just uh, really slick and strong when it's wet. If you're out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, it, it'll lock up a truck on a flat grade. I mean, it's nasty stuff. Just like real, real red clay is, you know, like we have some around here. So, but what, what happened to me is I, I get there. It's really easy to work the ground. I didn't pay attention to the, 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 the content of the soil because it was so easy. It was, if I remember right, this would have been, it was, it was, on a, it was in North Carolina, actually, where this was. And I'm trying to think of the time of the year. I think it was, I don't think it was fall. I think it was spring. Late spring, probably uh, May, something like that. And he was doing predator work. And the, the temperature started really getting high. And then it'd be kind of cool for a couple of days and we were getting we it was really dry when i first got there then it got really wet now this is what happened with the clay and the sand it was really easy to work with and one of the things that we're going to talk about is bedding traps deeper in sand with the, the clay mixture what happened to me is i had all of these big beautiful dirt holes and all these really well hidden flat sets and all this and then this rain came and then it jumped up to probably 85 or 90 degrees, blaring sun, not a cloud in the sky, and the traps wouldn't go off. Not because something was going underneath the, the pan, the clay was locking up the jaws enough so when the pan went down, they couldn't release. And the reason I started looking into this, and, and this is something you need to look at on your own trap line because sometimes it's best to use dirt that you bring instead of use what's there to get away from some of this stuff or pick the places you put your trap depending on the best dirt that you can find at the time is um, the traps 
I would see tracks around the set and the trap would be fired in the bed, but absolutely nothing moving. Kind of like it does sometimes if you get a, a freak freeze and you hadn't set up for it. Well, what's happened is animals stepping on the, the, the pan, but the dirt, the clay is hardened up kind of like a, a pot, basically pottery. And, and it's, it takes a, it's really, really slow to close. It could take, uh, you know, a couple of minutes. It could take a couple of hours, but eventually it'll break loose and just fires in the bed. So it looks like someone just took a stick and fired the trap, but you know, there's no stick in the jaws. So they got me looking at the clay. Now, what I did with that is I went and I got a bunch of, uh, I think I got a quarter ton of sand at the local hardware store, mixed it with some peat moss and uh, buckwheat holes that I happened to have with me. And then I used this mixture and there was no clay around the trap and everything. It blended in pretty well. And the color wasn't exactly right, but I just blew everything out. And the, the catching coyotes was not an issue after that, but neither was the sand problem. So um, that's the first thing that came to my mind, which I doubt's the first thing he was thinking out. The biggest problem you're gonna have with sand guys is sand is just like an hourglass. It moves and it settles. And it, and it may not settle all at once because you may think that you're good with what you're putting on your pan, under your pan or over your pan and you got just this little bit of opening and all of a sudden, it, for whatever reason, it starts running down into that and sand does not compact. So if that happens to you, what, what I guarantee you is going to happen is you're going to have these sets that look really good, but you can't fire them off with an elephant because the sand creeps up under everything because that's it's just looking it's almost like water looking for it's you know everything being level and a lot of times you really can't see it so the sand getting under your trap to me is probably the biggest issues that people have now I'm, i have some friends and i know of some guys that with they really tune their traps where they don't use any pan covers or any type of underalls or anything like that and they just use uh, sifted dirt inside of the jaws and they, they're relying on that trap firing so fast with so little movement that actually uh, they do pretty well with it in certain types of soil. Most of those guys that I know of do this trap in places with high organic matter. So there's a little bit of compression in, in that type soil. Sand does not have that. So if you're one of those guys that, that does that, sand is not the place to be trying this because it's going to just it's 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 going to it's going to end up under your pan and it's not going to go off. Now I've tried a couple of different ways. The first way that I thought was the best was uh, using uh, you know like uh, pillow filling, uh, polyfill. I've tried insulation, which the mice in Texas love, which was a nightmare. And then uh, some of the polyfill, the mice really liked in certain areas, if you have pack rats and stuff like that. So you come up to the trap and you know, the, the trap may go off, but you got this, all of a sudden this eye peel sticking up, this little fuzzy tail that's sitting there and it definitely caused you some issues. So I, I didn't like that idea. Uh, I've tried peat moss and in certain areas, and I, See, this is where you've got to have an open mind and, and look at what's going on on your line. See, around here, I could use polyfill without too much detrimental as long as it doesn't freeze. So if it stays dry and it's fluffy and it's warm, I can put polyfill under my, my pan 
and unless it's going to get wet and freeze and turn into an ice cube it's not that big a deal same thing with insulation but uh, just because I can do it here doesn't mean that it doesn't cause me issues in other places I've had that issues because I used to like that idea because it was fast you know uh, I started off with uh, the styrofoam you know the scrunchy styrofoam type things and and they worked okay till they got wet and then I was like well that, that's that doesn't work very well and then I got into some more sandy soil and I tried the polyfill because you can go buy it at Walmart for goodness sake and some places it worked very well and some places the mice and stuff loved it and they would steal it and they would they would expose your trap and all kind of stuff so I didn't like that now with peat moss which again in most places you're gonna to be totally fine in some years like I can tell you in Texas some years most years I'll put it that way most years I can use straight peat moss in Texas with no problem um, no problem whatsoever but there's been a couple of years for whatever reason of whatever life cycle of these grub things that show up I don't know if it's moisture temperature or whatever it is because it's not every year that I've been down there but some years you use peat moss I don't know if they're laying eggs in it or what's going on but you get these overgrown looking maggot things that show up and what they do is they'll move all of that peat moss around and then it'll and it'll get up under your pan to the point where it won't fire in your trap even though you've got it blended with dirt and stuff on top I mean it looks like a three-year-old did it and then you pull the trap up and you got these bugs and stuff under there and uh, you can imagine with the raccoons and skunks that's definitely not what you want so you know I definitely wouldn't use that in that situation so I like using peat moss but when I see a problem I've got to have a secondary way now today if I'm going to sand I can tell you what I'm gonna use the blue shop towels that you get from a, a, a hardware place or I think you can even get them at Walmart you may be able to get them at dollar stores I mean I think they're actually called shop towels they're heavy-duty uh, they're blue they're a lot thicker they're not paper towels guys don't confuse this with what I'm talking about paper towels they don't tear very easy or anything like that so you know you get a sheet of that you can cut it in half uh, if you're using the really big traps like the CDRs or something you can't really cut it in half because it's not big enough but on the sand what that would allow me to do is use it kind of like a lot of guys do wax paper now sand does not compact like wet moisture soil does like most of us deal with on, on a normal basis but by using that paper towel I could completely control anything getting under that pan and I could pack it in between the jaws kind of like the old Tom Miranda thing where you're packing it in the jaws and you, you clear off where the your pan is at you can see that in between your thumbs and your forefingers and you can get it as solid as a rock inside of your jaws and the only thing that can move is that pan that has been the best way that I've learned to deal with sand if it does rain it doesn't hurt that paper towel you'd have to have that paper towel out there for probably a couple of months being off and on a rain for it started deteriorating uh, toilet paper is a no-go first time it rains imagine what that does paper towels pretty much the same thing but these blue shop towels they can be any color I'm sure they make them in any color um, I've even went as far in just out of necessity one time 
where I was down in some really sandy draws and I didn't have the paper towels I actually used the yellow notebook paper the the more thicker kind of like you know like you you see business people using I just wadded it up really good and I used that and when it did get rain on it I was surprised how well it held up and that did fairly well you can't get much cheaper than that so that that's one of the things that I would be looking at now when it comes to um, sand the 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 most advantage that gives you in my opinion is the ability to blend in sets really really fast sand is one of those things that um, it, it, it'll look funny when you first put a set in you come back in a couple hours with some sand on it and if you if you there's no visual whatsoever you'll never ever be able to tell there's a trap there to the point you better have some way of writing down you know like third clump over from the mesquite tree or or something like that so you can find them because once the sun gets on them and you do a fine sifting and especially with sand when you're doing your flat sets you bed it in really well and then you sift over that then if you sift out three or four feet in each directions quickly with a sifter for about uh, probably about 30 40 minutes you'll be able to tell the traps there and then it just completely disappears it's like the invisible man so by trapping in sand I'm definitely going to use more flat sets probably than I will dirt holes just because it gives me the advantage to be able to blend in or if I'm going to be using a lot of dirt holes in sand then that still gives me the advantage of blending in that set because I can pull out of you know the dirt that comes out of the hole I can throw it everywhere then I can pull a big wad of it out and have it off to like the left or the right or however I think the animal is going to approach the set I can pile it up and have it really loose and everything so it looks like the animal sit there and just dug it between its legs and then off to the side of that the easy approach going up to the set I can blend in a set so I'm, I'm actually blending in a flat, uh, dirt hole set but I've got the big gnarly dirt going on the other direction and for coyotes you'll be amazed how well you pick up coyotes that don't really like a lot of disturbance will still go in because in their mind nothing's ever been there so there's a lot of security there so that's an advantage that you have with that if you get around a lot of uh, spooky coyotes I do think with sand just because it's easy like you couldn't pull this off in mud because it just be it'd be worse but with sand if you're around stuff that's had a little bit of pressure on them or you're not sure if they had pressure on them or just having a good SOP I guess standard operation procedure is I would have you know like a little whisk broom or whatever with me in, in my bag and as I'm backing away from that set I would just dust that out as I back up back to the truck for one it's easy it's not gonna hurt anything and it may be an advantage but I can tell you that if you have sand and you got boots and you're walking up to that thing and you're putting in your set all of a sudden there's a lot more going on to a coyote's mind if you've got all these boot tracks and all that and because sand does it so easily you can you can just wipe it out I don't know why you wouldn't do that now the biggest thing that I've learned on, on dealing with sand is because it doesn't bed as well the trapper is better off bedding their trap deeper bedding your trap hides a bunch of sins now 
the sin is not going to be the sin. The sin is going to be not be able to bed it in as well. Because you you got some good, you know, regular soil in the fall. Got a little bit of moisture in there. You can pack a trap in there that, you know, nothing's going to move it, you know, with some decent technique. But you do the same thing with sand, and it's real floppy and this, that, and the other. You push down on a jaw, so you try to pack under it. It's sand, and then it moves the other way, and it's sand. If you if you put that trap, now if you're using for coyotes, for an example, or for bobcats, you can easily get away with three quarters of an inch to an inch depth over your jaws of sand. The deeper you get that, the less the rockiness of your trap is going to be an issue because it seems to distribute it out. But if you're one of these guys that wants this to have a you know eighth inch or something like that over your trap and you're doing it with sand, you're going to run into issues of stuff stepping on jaws and, and moving the trap and start digging the trap out and stuff like that, trying to figure out what's going on. <coughs> but if you bury that thing deeper, that seems to go away a lot which is the complete opposite of working with gumbo or clay. So, I mean, you know, where it is. Now, one of the, the things that I do remember when I took instruction from Craig, especially the first time, is we would find tracks, and then we would find the travel way, like they're coming out of these breaks, going to those sheep, and stuff like that. So we had a, a, a somewhat of a travel way, which is usually in his country out there. It's going to be, you know, where two buttes come together, and it's got like a, a it's not as high an elevation, or you got some gaps and some breaks or something like that. And if he would look down and see that there was a lot of gumbo right here where he sees the track, he would he would move up or down till he found the best dirt. That he's going to get at that particular situation and then if it still wasn't the best he always had some with him that he would pack around the trap that's a man with experience see uh especially when you're beginning you you try to think that it doesn't really matter but it really does so if you're dealing with soil that's going to give you a problem bring your own and if you're if you're not gonna do that you're gonna have issues but the biggest thing that I learned from that is you pick the place with the best soil to put the set that's that's gonna be on location you know so we may we may have found cows I'm thinking of one in particular you had cows coming out of this break about three miles away and they're harassing this, this poor guy with some sheep where we found the tracks at the best looking quote location part it was a lot of gumbo if it got wet it was gonna be a, a nightmare so we followed that back towards the sheep for about 200 yards till we got in a different type of soil that, that handled the trap a lot better, which allowed him to keep the trap in place a lot longer without fiddling with it once they got some rain. And that's where you put the trap in. So uh, if, you're, if you're having trouble with sand and that's all you have, that's all you're gonna have. But if you've got a way to get something with a little bit more of organic matter in there, I think you'd be better off, you know, personally. But when I think of sand, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. The cool thing about sand is you can see how you're missing animals that you can't see in a lot of other situations. So if you find yourself in a bunch of sand, for goodness sake, take the time to learn from your trap line. Now this other question is one that I find uh, pretty interesting just for the simple fact of it can go anywhere 
and it can be the right answer or the wrong answer from one trapper to the next. So it can seem really simple, but it's a pretty complex question. And it's basically asking me about line management as far as what animals I trap when. And there's a lot of things that go into this. Um, I can tell you from talking to a lot of trappers, sometimes this does not really equate till later in the season and then they're kind of like man i wish i'd have done this different so basically when i'm looking at line management on species that i'm going to be trapping in a year i'm kind of looking at some different things now it could be the ease of trapping it could be uh the non-ease of trapping at a different time or this time you know, I'm looking at what the, the money animals are, or I think they're going to be this year, what I want to trap and different things like that. So basically, uh, when you're looking at this, what is your weather? That's the first thing that should come in my mind. Because I know for a lot of guys, you know, when I, when I hear people in, say, uh, you know, some of the Northeast, Pennsylvania and stuff like that, when your season opens historically you, you normally got a couple of good weeks you know like in Maryland and places you got a couple of good weeks you may get a rain but it's pretty dry it's pretty cool the grounds in good shape um, you know the times right of the year and you can really rock and roll then you've got certain places depending on the time of the year that it can be a lot wetter or it can be really really hot or you can have some weird stuff going on like when I went out and trapped in Iowa for raccoon. It was in the mid 80s on these great big furry fat raccoons and they weren't going to do very much. You know, I didn't know that when I was going out there to look at that. If I would have looked at the weather, I'd have been much better off on that line management of that trip to wait probably about 10 or 12 days before I went out there instead of trying to get into the the scrapping of the the opening season day i'd have been much better off i'd have caught more coon no, no doubt in my mind even though a lot of the the really easy stuff would have been gone because those big fat hairy coon did not like moving around when it was 80 something degrees in iowa they're not like a southern coon where 80 degrees is a cool off they're somewhere where 80 degrees is like July. It got cool, then it got warm again. They got all this body fat they didn't want to move. So one, one of the biggest thing is what is your weather? How does that weather affect you? How does it affect the animals? You know, is it going to slow them down? Is it going to speed them up? Is it going to be a neutral where it really doesn't matter? Is, is it a big money animal and you're willing to take the chance anyway? I mean, if like, let's say for an example... If you're in, let's say Pennsylvania, and, and Eastern coyotes are all of a sudden worth $200 a piece, and opening day is Saturday, and you look at the weather, and oh my goodness, we got global warming has showed up and is going to kick my butt this fall. It's 90 degrees in Pennsylvania, opening day of coyote season. Now, if it's a big enough money animal, say 200 a piece, I would probably say I'm still going after them. But the catch is going to be way down. They're not going to move as far. They're not going to be as active. They're not going to work sets as hard and stuff like that. 
But if it's if uh, if I enjoy trapping coyotes, and the number the temperature is going to be hotter, and I know my catch is going to be down, and it's not the same money amount on that animal, I'm going to look at it from a business point of view and go, is there anything else for this next ten days of heat wave that I can go trap? that the weather is not going to affect them as much. Now see that could be beaver, it could be otter. Uh, you know, I, I would I would probably go to more of the water type stuff, especially the water animals, uh, muskrats. You know, uh, maybe a little early for them, but I would look at things that it wouldn't affect them because let's say that um, a coyote's worth $20 or $30 or $40 and a beaver is only worth $10 well I'm looking at it from a business point of view and Pennsylvania is a, a bad example of this because y'all's weird laws of your districts and all that but if I went out and I could catch 20 beaver or five coyotes because they're not moving I'm gonna be a winner with a beaver and not the coyotes now if I just wanted to go trap coyotes and that's what tripped my trigger and I wouldn't worry about what they brought or anything like that, go trap the coyotes, you know, if that's what you want to do. You know, but I'm always looking at the weather. I'm looking at it historically and I'm looking at it in real time when I'm trying to make decisions, which on some of the podcasts I talked about, you know, where you've got a plan. You, you've got different things you can go do. You've got your land already, you know, lined up. So when something changes that's going to be inconvenient for you or impossible for you or, or where the, those specific species animals aren't going to like it, you can pull and switch on, on a dime. If you don't plan for it, now you're just going to be riding around looking for somewhere to put a trap, and that's not very cool. So what are some of the issues with the, with the weather that you got to think about? Temperature. Is it going to be a freeze, a, a freak freeze early? Is you going to have snow? Are you going to have flooding? Like around here, I've got to plan around the flooding because I can tell you I can do things in uh, November and part of December historically here with a canoe or a kayak or even a boat that you couldn't pay me to do in late January, February, and March. No freaking way. Now I've done those crazy things when I was a lot younger and I lost a bunch of equipment and I, and I probably almost died several times. Because we live in the foothills of the Appalachians, all that water's coming off all these mountains that surround me. And when you get rain, after all the winter of the rain, all of a sudden you're going out to check traps and you have huge fluctuations in water. The current can be crazy. You've got trees floating down the, the, the creeks and stuff like that. So if I'm looking at the way to manage a line and I'm going to just say I'm going to stick with the water this year and trap beaver and otter, I'm going to do all of the line that I'm going to be doing out of the boat or canoe early. And when all that craziness is going on where it was calm two months ago, then I'm going to go to where I can drive, use a four-wheeler, off the road, whatever, where I can then not have to be in that situation. You know, earlier when I was just strictly numbers beaver and all that type stuff, I never took anything, any of that into account. And part of the reason I've learned this is, you know, hey man, you know, last November I, I got in the, the canoe on these four different lines and I covered 
you know, 40 miles of this river. I caught X amount of beaver. You know, beaver's gonna be about the same price. I make good money or whatever, and it's sitting in, in January now, and I go out and I try to do that now. Now when it sprinkles, it floods. That's a different situation, you know. So you gotta keep all these things in mind. So basically what you're doing is you're trying to plan for all these contingencies and that's the one I'm looking at line management. That's definitely uh, what I'm looking at. There's going to be a lot of you, like say Idaho, that if you try to wait too long to go after your bobcats and marten and stuff like that, you're going to have a lot of passages in the mountains because of snow you can't get through. So maybe you need to go there first, even if the fur is not as prime, so you can get there, then start working your way down. You know, when you, when you when you talk to some of the guys, that, you know, back in the 70s and you read what, you know, the, you know, all of the, the big time trappers did, most of them had a, a sequence that they did. You would have guys that would start trapping coyotes at elevations of 7,000 to, you know, 11,000 feet out in the Rocky Mountains in September. And then they know they're going to get snowed out. And it could be in September, it could be October. But they try to get two or three weeks in on those coyotes. They're prime at that elevation. They're not prime down at the bottom. So if they did this backwards, they couldn't get to the mountains and trap those coyotes later, but they but they could trap the ones in the valley that aren't prime yet. So they're, they're thinking ahead a little bit. And then what they would do is the snow would come down the mountain, they would try to stay ahead of it a couple of thousand feet. They would work themselves down from that and then they would go to the, the valley floors or the deserts and stuff like that. And they would start working on those, like in the foothills. And then eventually at the end of the winter, they would end up in, in the, more of the deserts and just have to fight the snow when it came and stuff like that. But it wasn't as dramatic as it is at 9,000 feet. So that's one way that those guys learned that they can have good quality fur, but they had to constantly manage their line to work in front of the weather as it's coming down so you know that that really depends your access can have a lot to do with it like around here most of the time and most of the i would say most of the eastern states november part of december unless you're way up in maine or somewhere like that where you get crazy amount of snow really really quick um you may have good road access because it's drier and then you start getting rain and snow and it just beats your vehicle to death. So my advice was to go to where it's going to beat your vehicle to death early and then come out to where it's easier around farm country and stuff like that. You know, you, you've got to really think about what it is and where, where you're, you're going about it. Uh, it could be you're going to have to switch to a snow machine or, or, or something like that because of the weather. I don't know. But you're going to have to plan for all that type of stuff. And, and then you're going to have to boil this down as to what do you want to trap. When you're, when you're looking at your line management as far as time and space and everything else, what is it that you want to trap? And then you have to figure out why. I mean, is it uh, just for the enjoyment of you like doing that? You know, if, if that's why you're trapping, that, that should be your main reason, personally. I think that should be your main reason. If, if you just like to go trap coyotes, 
year round because you're trying to you want to break the mythical 100 200 300 couch in your area or 10 or whatever it is and that's just what you want to do because that trips your trigger then I would say that's what you need to do but what if you're looking at it from a different perspective what about the money what if you're looking at this from the money value of this so let's say uh, we're in Arkansas where you have a lot of mink you also have a lot of otter and you have a lot of beaver there is quite a few coyotes there are some cats and sometimes they're pretty decent there's going to be some gray fox all these are going to be in your uh your mind about what you want to trap but if you're looking at it from the money point of view if the mink are bringing good money and you're in you're a good meat trapper my line management would be get on those early and then as soon as your line is done start looking at it from the perspective of the next highest paying animal that'll go with the trap line that you're already doing so if you're running a big mink line say you got a, a couple hundred blind sets out you're you're covering 100 miles or whatever it is once you get those out if you've got a couple hours left at the end of the day, if you're running hard enough and you got a couple hours left in the day, start feeling in with if otters bring in the most money with otter sets. If beaver is, is coming in uh, at a decent price or caster's really high or whatever it is, and then I would, I would switch to one of those animals in between the meat sets. Now, if cats are really high and you've got the levees and stuff like that and you've got, say, 20 or 30 places that you could put in some good cat sets and you're thinking about the money and they're bringing pretty good while you're mink trapping, if you have, once you get your mink line out, then switch over to that other. I call this a progressive line, which we'll get into a little bit more in a minute. But if it's for the money, then you're going to have to figure out what is the, 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 the big grande money animal what is the secondary grande money animal? What are your populations of those animals? What what realistically can you catch of those animals? I mean, just because Jim Spencer can catch a couple hundred mink in Arkansas, I don't think I could go out there the first time and catch a couple hundred mink. I mean, that's just not the way that that realistically works. If you've caught a few otter by accident and you think you're going to go somewhere and catch a hundred otter, you're not being realistic. You know, so if you if you're looking at mink then otter, and I'm just using these as a blind example, mink then otter, but you're not really good at catching otter on purpose, but you can catch a few accidentally beaver trapping. You got a good market for your caster. Let's say you've got a meat market, or you're eating the beaver, then you got the beaver hide. Maybe you can get some bounty. Maybe you can do a little uh, payment for some farmers or something like that. Maybe then, even though otter may be twice as much as beaver or three times or four times you're better off because the skill level populations all these different factors you may be better off going for the beaver and just accidentally catching some otter even though in between the beaver and the otter or the beaver and the mink there sits the otter so you need to be realistic about what it is that you're that you're definitely going to be going for and think about those those money animals now, if you're trapping for fur quality, your line management is going to be a lot different. Your time on your, on your line can definitely be a lot shorter. Um, if you're trying to catch just the primest fur, 
then you're going to have to come up with some other criteria by which ones you're going to pick. If um, if you're say like in Arkansas again, mink prime up earlier than coon do for the most part, especially the males. So if you're going to go out and you're going to target those mink, and you're also going to be trapping raccoons, but the raccoons in Arkansas don't really start filling out till probably Thanksgiving. Then you, then I would lay off of the the coon until that point, or maybe I would just concentrate totally on mink, then concentrate totally on the raccoon, and then if you've got time or whatever, or there's another animal you want to catch, and then I would concentrate on that. Uh, when you're when you're looking at primeness, you've also got to think about when you can trap, what the environment is, and stuff like that. If, if you're in a northern place and uh, cats are bringing good money and you just want to catch the primest bobcats, that's going to be when the toms are moving in the breeding season, which is normally going to be somewhere in January, February, or March. If you've got to go to the mountains to get them or something like that, you've got to take the weather into consideration. Is it, is it going to be worth it to go up there just for a handful of cats? And it could be for whatever you're wanting to do. Could this be for a, a you know trap vacation or just to go do it or whatever? But if you're looking at it from the primeness point of view, that's when you have to know in your area when is stuff the primest and best. And that window is usually not very long. Mink primeness is best. It's probably got about a month. You know, especially in southern states, northern states, I'm not sure about with them going under the water and ice and all that other type of stuff. Coons around here, um, to be honest with you, our best coons in Tennessee are January and February. That's when our that's when our coons put on the most fur, which is also the the, the because of our trapping uh, season is the best time for bobcats. Now, coyotes usually by February you're going to start running probably a forty percent, maybe even higher of rubs and, and weak fur and stuff like that. Around here in the mountains, where I live, I can go on top of these mountains, which is only about 2,000 foot elevation from where I'm sitting, so it'd be about 2,600 feet. Those are definitely worth taking in October, uh, about the middle of October, and we're allowed to trap year-round. The negative of that is some of the belly fur right at the crotch is still weak, but the rest of it, shoulders, necks, all that, that's looking pretty good. But you normally by Christmas, after Christmas on coyotes here in the south, they start going way downhill. So you, you've got to know this. Our best beaver, because of our temperatures and everything down here, our best, best beaver are going to be in uh, January and February. And they start rubbing in about the 15th of March. I mean, bad rubs. So as far as fur goes, you know, there's not really much of a spring, quote, beaver season down here for that. They're really weak in November and October. You know, so it's going to be, you have to know your line, then you're going to have to pick what is your criteria of why you want to chase that animal at that particular time. Uh, sometimes you got to think about fur damage. A classic example of this is coyotes. Now, where I live and where uh, 
what I've talked to with Kentucky trappers, especially uh, Matt Jones talked about this, Lynn Williams talked about this. I've talked to some other guys, uh, Leon Smith about this. Coyotes there because of the amount of bob wire fences and everything else that they have there where you don't have a lot of this type of open ground that we have here it's very different if i was going to try to manage a cow line and say you know western kentucky than it would be in southeast tennessee because of the rubbing so if you're going to go out and try to catch coyotes there you better do it as quick as you can to get ahead of the rubbing because what happens up there is there's so many fences and especially uh page wire and all kind of bob wire and they run a bunch of strands up there which we don't do the same type fences here as they do for the most part they rub a lot faster so if you wait till later in the year in western kentucky to go trap your coyotes because everybody else is saying they're going to be primer they may be primer but you're also going to have this great big dearth of fur between the ears down through the shoulder blades. And it's going to take a, you know, if, the, if an average coyote's bringing 30 bucks, it's going to make that coyote, when you take it to a fur sale or send it to an auction, just because that little bit of stretch of, of hair's not going to be there, it's going to be worth about $5. So fur damage can have a lot to do with how you manage that line. You know, I don't have a lot of experience when it comes to spring beaver stuff or spring muskrat stuff. Uh, I don't know how far you can push before that really good fur, the one, right when ice out comes, before it starts breaking down. You know, but I would say that there's definitely a point where it's rapidly decreasing. Now, wherever that is, you need to think about that as far as fur damage. So if if it if you got like a two week window between ice out and this degrading starts happening with fur quality, well that's your window. That's when you manage that. Even if you got a, a switch stuff around. So I mean, if I was going to be doing uh, open as soon as the ice opens for beaver, muskrats, whatever, as soon as I would see it starting to open, I would pull whatever else I was doing and converge. If for whatever reason, that was the animal that I was gonna be going for. So think about that. We've talked a little bit about the, the travel, whether it be driving, whether it be four wheelers or boats. The, the, the biggest, the, you know, the, the thing that sticks out in me here where I live is the flooding. And it can be in Mississippi. If, uh, if you're going down to Louisiana, Mississippi, um, see, Arkansas, probably to some point, and you're trapping close to the Mississippi River, and you got the dump ponds, which if you look on a map, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you got the Mississippi, or even other rivers for that matter, that they've levied up, like on the Mississippi. In Louisiana, that thing's like 40 feet tall. But the dirt to build that levee came between the river and the levee. So you've got all these big holes that's been dug. They fill up with water. They're wildlife paradise. But every day from starting of season to the end of season that you take that, you're running into a danger of not seeing your traps till sometime in the summer. Because you can get a bunch of rain up in Missouri or, or uh, Minnesota or somewhere and eventually that's going to get that above the regular river line and it's going to get trapped 
where all of a sudden now you've got elevation coming out of the river then kind of comes down and you got these ponds it'll get swamped in there so if you're going to dump ponds and say on a big river you got levees you're going between the liver the levee and the river you're going to have to manage that line of when you're going to be running the most danger of going down there you know the earlier you do it for the most part it's better because you get all this rain build up in the winter in the eastern part of the country now being out west i don't know if you've really got anything like that you know i would say in uh from looking at the colorado river in the springtime that'd be a rough place to be trapping you know if you're gonna do beaver or something or mink or, or rats or something out there playing around something like that you better get on it early i mean that, that's just my my two cents on that when you're thinking about raccoon on your your line management early raccoons that are on the water are small so you know your line management on raccoons i'd go high and dry if i was going to start early here i wouldn't catch as many raccoons we don't have a lot of raccoons but my catch would be even lower i would go to places where there's not a lot of water I would get on the sides of the, the, the mountains and the ridges and the farms and stuff like that and I would totally stay away from the rivers and the creeks and the ponds. Because early all the little uh, dink coon, the small coon, they congregate around the water. You can catch a bunch of them but they're all small and they're not worth a whole lot of money. The bigger uh, what we call ridge coon around here, they can be pretty big, they, they fur up fairly quick and they're worth a whole lot more money and you don't catch a lot of dinks but if you're trapping raccoons once it starts getting really cold as uh, Blackie used to say everything goes back to mother and what is referring to that is the water all the coon will eventually go back to the water so if, if, if I'm in a year where raccoons are doing very well price wise and I'm gonna stick somewhere in the south i'm probably not going to get next to water setting coon traps till probably january in february you got a lot of the the big boar coons that are following creeks and stuff like that if i do it early they're little bitty coons that uh, are going to be too small and too weak so you know you, you've got to think about that uh, we've talked to uh, uh, you know about the beaver I have a feeling uh, there's going to be, don't take my word on this guys because, you know, I, I have no idea what beaver and otter and muskrats and stuff like that as far as primeness and breaking down a fur when you get into Minnesota and South Dakota and, and you know, UP Michigan, all that type stuff. That's something you're going to figure out. The other thing about your trap line management, see, there's a lot of these little things you got to think about when is the best time to intersect the most amount of animals now you have coyotes that disperse most of the time that's before most of us start trapping in the the probably missouri down but you know guys out west and up north you're going to have that dispersal and your seasons open so much earlier you may be able to connect with that you'll have more coyotes running around than any other time you know and that's only going to last for about a month or so until they start calming down so your travel ways you know when when mink uh the bucks start running hard what time does that happen in your area if you're going to trap mink when's that need to be 
I can tell you here, if I'm going to run floats for muskrats, it needs to be the latest in the year that it can be because early in the season, they just won't deal with it. And I think it has to do something to do with mating and they're traveling and they're just getting up on stuff and resting, something like that, I'm not quite sure. Bobcats, you wanna catch a bunch of bobcats and you start trapping them before the rut is on and before the toms are moving everywhere, your catch is gonna be probably a third of what it should be. So you've gotta take that consideration because that's when the most amount of the animals are gonna be. For some of you guys that are up north where y'all got really uh, harsh winters, but you get these you know, Indian summers and Indian Chinooks in the middle of the winter, you need to be prepared for those if you're gonna be trapping raccoon during those times because you may only have three or four days. You know, I know some guys up north that have barns set up, they have den trees set up, they have certain uh, travel ways set up and they're sitting there with, with buckets with the, the trap fired off with the, the, the safety catches on there. And when as soon as that Chinook starts a day or two before, they're running around like crazy people, hooking everything up so they get that two or three day of a big coon catch of some really big, nice looking boars. So, you know, that's one way you may have to manage it. Most animals have certain times of year that run more, like fox. Uh, they seem to run more earlier in the year. So there's there's more going around. Plus there's more alive. You know, they're not getting run over by cars. They're uh, they're not getting trapped and stuff like that. Plus those, if you, if you talk to Randy Smith, he'll tell you pretty quick, early fox are easier to catch, later fox are just queer. And he don't mean gay, he just means they're strange. They work sets different. They've probably been around other trappers and stuff like that. So... You know, if I was going to be trying to do the fox, I would probably try to do it as early as I could where I felt comfortable with the fur quality, you know, because they seem to run more. So you've got to know that stuff when you're talking about your 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 way that you're going to be doing it. Um, now, the last thing about this, when you're talking about line management on species, we're going to talk a little bit about progressive trap line, which I've talked about before, but I'm going to get to give a brief uh, overview in case you hadn't heard it. So let's say that uh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to use some of the stuff that I'm, I'm going to use uh, a Louisiana trap line of mine for an example. My main target when I went down there the very first time was otter. Why was that? Well, it was because the otter at that time were bringing about 150 to 180 dollars a piece. So that was the main reason that I drove to Louisiana to do that. Now, I'm working for a parish. I also have to trap beaver. They have enough beaver that just by running as many otter sets as I was running, they were, they've never seen that many beaver caught anyway. So I never really had to target beaver when I was down there, my main target for money for me was the otter. The beaver were secondary and that was uh, $35 a tail or $25. $25 a tail of what those beaver were for that particular parish. And that was just extra money thrown on the end. But from the trap line management point, once I got all the locations that I could run or set or have the traps for, all the places that I could find that are really good, you know, about two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm starting really early. 
you know, I could I could run back and take a nap or put up fur or go put out more or try to find some more otter sign or, or something like that. But what I would do is then I would start using what I call a progressive trap line. I'd have the best places picked out that I could run for otter, which was the main species. The otter were accidental. I mean, the beaver were accidental because of the bounty. And then I knew that bobcats were bringing decent at that time. So what I started doing is I would skin the good beaver and I would throw them up on the bank. And then as soon as the, the bobcat came and covered them up, I'd go up there and I'd set it up and catch the bobcat. But what I wasn't doing when I started the trap line was trying to catch otter and bobcat. My main, guard, my main target was otter. Because I was thinking otter, I was feeling otter. I mean, I was dreaming about otter. My equipment was set up for otter. My brain was in otter mode. Now, once I'm just running otter sets your brain can can kind of you know wander a little bit then you can go you know that's a good looking break coming out of there that's going over to that by and that's going to hook up and there's a lot of timber next to that river i bet there's some uh, quite a few bobcats that are going to use that as a travel way and then i run over and i put in some bobcat sets now once i had what i considered the best bobcat sets uh, set up i started putting in things for raccoons the coyotes down there for fur i didn't want to mess with the, the live market so i wasn't going to do that there was some gray fox because i picked some of those up but it wasn't a massive amount of number i'm already catching the bobcat the otter and the beaver and then i'm the raccoons the, because there's a lot of them now i can start taking advantage of that but when i'm when i'm setting out my raccoon stuff keep in mind of what i'm doing I'm running my otter sets and I'm running my bobcat sets. I'm setting, thinking, and brain on raccoons as I'm running those other ones. I did not go out the first day and try to catch otter, bobcats, and raccoons. Because if you do that, and you're going to be honest with yourself, what you're going to find out is you're not going to get very far on your trap line because you're gonna to have to have different equipment. You're gonna to have to have different lures and baits. Your brain is gonna be trying to go back between all these different things. And so what happens, you get out under a bridge or a creek or a swamp and you're, and you're walking back and forth and you're going back to the truck and all of a sudden you see that you put a set in over there so you gotta go get this piece of equipment but you don't have a way to secure it because you're not set up for that. So you go back to the truck and you're just walking around. You're like a zombie out there walking around. At the end of the day, you've been really busy and you've put in probably a decent number of traps, but your location uh, numbers that you're running is going to suck. So your catch is not going to be that high. Now, whatever animal comes through those few locations that you set up, you're probably going to have pretty decent on. But what's going to happen is you're going to go there the next day and because everything is concentrated in a small area because your 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 number of locations are in the sucky zone you're not going to have a lot of animals you're just going to take a short amount of time to check them all and then you're going to repeat that process it's going to take you about a week before you get out of the sucky zone of locations being set but if you're thinking otter and you're going and you block up a creek with two traps and you put a you know the 
couple on a dam here, then a, you're putting some in some culverts here. At the end of the day, you've got a lot of locations set out. Because you're thinking otter, otter sets, otter sign, otter equipment, otter mode, everything's in otter. Then when that's run, you go to your other animals. And it could be beaver, it could be mink, it could be muskrats, it could be coyotes. You know, I've done a lot of stuff out of a boat catching quite a bit of red fox and coyotes around here after I set up for otter. I'm going around, I'm checking all the otter sets. Once they're all set up, then I start feeling, filling in, but only with one species at a time. Because if you get in a truck or someone's boat that's a multi-set, multi-species trapper, it is a nightmare. They've got 330s, they got 220s, they've got 110s, they got number threes for coyotes and bobcats, they got 175s or one and a halfs for fox, they got a bunch of DPs over in that corner. They're gonna have some snares, they're gonna have all these different ways of staking everything up. They're gonna have all these type of baits for all these type of animals, and it is a mess. But when you get in the vehicle and you and if you're gonna say run mostly uh, 330s for otter and, and you know a couple of dozen footholes or whatever, or you're going to run all footholes and a couple dozen 330s, that's all in your truck. So when you're getting up in the morning and you're looking at that, you make sure you got enough in the, to do what you need to do that day. You're only dealing with a couple of kind of traps, a couple of kind of staking systems, and a couple of kind of lures. So you're, you're through a reductionist style of factory trapping, you're more efficient. Now going out in multi-species and multi-sets and all that stuff, if you're just doing it for fun and that's your thing, knock yourself out. But it's definitely not a progressive and it's definitely not an efficient way to go about it in my experience. Not unless you just got animals falling off trees everywhere, which I've never experienced. But I guess you could. So when I'm doing the line management, all those other things we talked about, plus I'm going to throw in the progressive line at the end. That's when things starts getting really interesting on a trap line. That's when all of a sudden it seems like a trapper can go from a certain, if you want to call it a status level of trapping, not that there is such a thing, but all of a sudden now, I mean, he's like just, just rolling and rocking and kicking butt. Most of the time it's going to be from that, that the way that you manage that type of thing like uh, one of the things that Chip, Chip's done a video on he's got a little jack truck that, that he that he traps out of he's in the Delta and get really muddy it's really wet it's a good vehicle it's got a truck bed it's got a radio and a heater in it I'm sure it's low to the ground so like if Chip's running his live market coyote sets a progressive line for him could easily be First, he gets all his coyote sets out, and then in between those coyote sets, he sees some places like those, uh, we got a video up on Wolfer Nation as you can see. They cut these little ditches in the field to get the water off of it. Uh, they kind of go down to these breaks, and the cats were wearing it out. So Chip could go on, on his trap line, just using it as an example, get his coyote sets in, as he's running his coyote sets, if he has time, 
he starts plugging all those little cut ditches where the cats are running with snares or, or uh, you know, his uh, expand a pan uh, body grips or putting out his buckets the way he's done those before. But see, when he gets in the truck, he's got his catch stuff for his live market coyotes. Maybe a couple of coyote traps in case something gets run over or he finds something he didn't see. But the rest of it's his cat gear. And as he's going from set to set, and all of a sudden he's thinking cats, hey, there's another one of them. Yep, it's got cat tracks in there. Bam, whatever his set of choice is. And let's say after he gets those filled in, and he still has a little bit of time in a day, the way he can set his, because the way he makes his drag, where you got the little slot in those drags, he can literally have them sitting in the passenger seat. And when he sees coon tracks, like crossing from break to break, or he goes across uh, a levee or anything like that, he can have them pre-baited, which he does. He can open the door or lean out the window and drop the drag with the, the DP in it already baited going from his coyote sets that turn into a bobcat line that's now turning into a coon line. And the advantage of that would give Chip or anybody else, depending on what your situation is, you're literally running three lines or two lines or four lines compared to everybody else's one line. So your numbers are going to automatically be higher. Because if you do it the inefficient way, which is just running around like a zombie, you're not going to get any location set up. But if you do it this way and you run it in stages, this progression of a trap line, when, you, when, when you're full of the day, I mean, you, you can have your otter sets and your cat sets and your coyote sets and your beaver sets and all those sets out there, full lines of those, full coyote lines, full bobcat lines, full beaver lines, full otter lines, full coon lines, full whatever it is. You're having all that. So when you're looking at numbers, a lot of times I can tell you the reason some of the numbers that I've caught, not because I'm just like this super duper great trapper. It's because the efficiency in the way that I manage that line, not only in the progressive way, but the more mature I got in my trapping, the, the better I was at the primeness, at the money animals, at the weather, at the different uh, times of year and the weather is going to affect my trap line. I was always adjusting that to where the trap lines were so much more smoother and I didn't have all the downtime that a lot of trappers deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So just keep all that in mind when it comes to... Um, your trap line management it's a lot but it's worth going through you know it really is now I'm gonna be in Iowa next week I'm hoping uh, I think chips planning on doing some interviews down at the Arkansas show uh, this weekend so if you're around Arkansas go give chip at expand a pan a, a good warm handshake there but uh, I think he's gonna try to do some interviews since I'm gonna be gone hopefully chip just let me know Maybe you can take over the trapping radio next week, brother. Just let you know. So we're gonna we're gonna close on that. Think about all that trap line management stuff we talked about. If you ever get in sand, think about that stuff. But more than that, on your day-to-day -day basis, my biggest question to you of all the stuff we talked about today, are you looking over your shoulder looking for that shark? 
Are you part of the butt trap? Because if you are, you need to change directions in your mindset. Quit looking for the shark.